Going Linux, episode 385, Listener Feedback. Welcome to the Going Linux podcast. I'm your host, Larry Bushy. And I'm your co-host, Bill. Whether you're new to Linux, upgrading from Windows to Linux, or just thinking about moving to Linux, this podcast will provide you valuable information and advice that will help you in Going Linux. We hope that you'll find this and all of our episodes helpful in learning about Linux and open source applications and using them to get things done. If you want, you can send us feedback at our email address at goinglinux at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 1-904-468-7889. In today's episode, listener feedback. Hello, Bill. Hello, Larry. So what's new in your world? Well, I had a nice little exchange with my web uh, hosting company about the SSL certificates. Did you kill anybody? Um, no, I didn't kill anybody. Uh, <sighs> their uh, um, website won't allow me to create a help desk ticket, and their chat doesn't seem to work <sighs> consistently. I can't paste anything in, but I can type. As long as I type one sentence at a time, I'm okay. <laughs> Uh, however, once I did get in touch with them and began to work with them, the issue was resolved pretty quickly. They gave me some things to look at to figure out what was going on. They insisted that the certificate was not self-signed, as some of our minions had indicated. But um, And it turns out they are correct. It was not self-signed. It turns out the issue was one little graphic element guess what it is uh no fair reading off the show notes so tell me what this i'm sure it's got it's something open source related right am i right no not at uh, not at all it is oh. uh, very proprietary and you remember the reason that i put ssl certificates in in the first place because of itunes because of yeah because of apple insisting uh, that in order to list the podcast in their site that, you know, the website has to have HTTPS or an SSL certificate. Well, the iTunes button on our website on the subscription page mm -hmm. was pointing to an Apple site with HTTP. Mm. Okay. So, you know, they have very strict restrictions about their branding, as you might expect. And so rather than mess with that, I just linked to their button on their website. And the button for iTunes, the old button, is on an HTTP site, a site that doesn't have SSL certificates. And of course, they've changed all that to Apple Podcasts, not iTunes anymore for podcasts. Yeah. So they have a whole new thing that they want you to use that says listen on Apple Podcasts instead of listen on iTunes. Well, their old button is on this old site and what was causing our site not to behave properly was a link to their uh, site that doesn't have the SSL certificate. So as soon as I changed that, the padlock went on, everything works fine. Uh, there was one other change I had to make to point to the MeWe because... Um, apparently there's some issue with their redirects that 
isn't SSL certified or something. I don't know. I made those two changes and everything works fine. So you, you, so you mean to tell me that the website was throwing up all these false uh, messages just because of one link? Yeah, one link to a graphic element. <sighs> okay. Well, so, anyway, now we know. <laughs> well, I had a little bit of drama. Uh, I was uh, testing. By the way, your prediction of being doing ten uh, distributions. I'm already at halfway now, so you're pretty much a done deal. <laughs> but uh, okay. uh, I was testing out KDE Neon, and I was, I was, it was okay. I, I was liking it. it. You know, it's. You know, because I told you it was so configurable and everything. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'll try it and keep playing with it. But there was a uh, certain thing I needed to do. That, that um, I had a new hard drive. And uh, I said, well, it wouldn't let me copy any, uh, wouldn't let me create folders or copy things to it. I'm like, hmm. So I do some digging and, can't, and uh, I know there's a way you can go into the command line. But, you know, I have to look at things how a new user would look at them. Uh, yeah. So, it, to be clear, it was it wouldn't let you do this on an external USB connected on ex, hard drive. Yeah, an yeah. external ex, uh, USB hard drive. It's a uh, four uh, terabyte, uh, you know, Seagate Barracuda. Nothing special. Yep. And so I'm sitting there. And I was like, I don't understand this. So I'm looking. I'm looking, and and uh, so I I I said I, I told. You, I said, I can't get to change these permissions, you know, because again, I'm, I know there's a way to do it in the terminal. Uh, I'd have to look it up because I, I don't memorize all that crap. So you suggested just, you know, click on it on the drive and you said open as uh, administrator or root. I'm like, hey, that's yeah. a great idea. I said, I didn't think about that. So what do you think happened next? Well, you already know because I sent you a screenshot of it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, if you hadn't sent me the screenshot, I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, apparently, apparently, it, it, when I when I tried to open as um, a root or tried to do uh, sudo or any anything like that, it popped up with a nice message that says you can't do this in the Dolphin File Manager because there's unfixable and I you you saw it, it says unfixable security vulnerabilities. And I'm sitting right. there going, are you kidding me? So, yeah, finally just said, uh, well, this I can't really recommend this because people do have uh, USB drives and they do want it. But I was just like, why would you put unfixable? It's like, okay, we know it's broke. We're just not going to fix it. So we're just going to disable the whole fun- uh, uh, one piece of this functionality. <laughs> so made no sense. Yeah, yeah there's uh, – <laughs> It may maybe it's difficult to fix, but impossible. I don't know about that, uh, and but I don't it, know yeah. the specific details. And I'm not technical enough to be able to, you know, weigh in unequivocally on it. But it seems to me like it's it should be something that's fixable. Come on, <laughs> maybe you have to rewrite the entire operating system or something. But I don't know. It it. Well, not the right. yeah. It's not the operating system. It's just the user space. The uh, you know your your graphical uh, interfaces. You know that's you know one of the things that we always say is that when we recommend something to new users, 
that they should be able to do everything they can do, uh, maybe not as efficiently or as fast, but everything like, uh, you know, adding a hard drive so you can actually copy files to it, you know, your pictures that you've downloaded from your phone or whatever, uh, and without having to drop through a command line because you can't tell me you're going to get some 70-year-old grandmother who's going to become a command line warrior just to do these pictures. The first thing they're going, she's going to say is, uh, no, give me back my insert uh, proprietary operating system name here. So Yeah. Well, you know what? I bet one of our minions is at least one of our minions knows the details behind this in KDE Neon and can tell us why it's unfixable. And if you're listening and you can do that, drop us a line. Let us know what's going on here because it doesn't seem right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah, I mean, like I said, it's um, it, it was a. They've done some nice stuff to make it um, make it yeah easy. They have a lot of nice tools. Kitty Neon, you, uh, I've never seen repositories that fast. I, it's like uh, I, I want that program because it's kind of stripped down. They don't put a lot of stuff like they do in Kubuntu. You kind of add mm -hmm. what you want. So that was a great a great um, system to test out different programs to see if they actually worked, you know, without saying, okay, let me see. And it was the latest and greatest, so according to them, because that's their te the KDE's test bench, basically, is KDE Neon. Uh, it's built on Ubuntu long-term support, 18.04, but, uh, yeah, you always have the, the, you know, latest KDE. You, I was getting updates every day, so, yeah, anyway. Yeah, well, and the bottom line is if it is, has problems like you can't copy files to an external USB hard drive, it's not something we can recommend. So, unfortunately, no. you need to use something else. Um, and I did. And, and fortunately, <laughs> there's lots to choose from. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, shall we get into our email from yes. our listeners? Okay. Of course. Um, so, our first Email is from Paul, who provided two audio clips to go with his email. Paul writes, Hi, Larry and Bill. Thanks for the great information you give our community each episode. I thought you might find the information in these audio clips interesting. I'd never heard this about Linux Mint before. If possible, I'd like to hear your comments on the two audio clips I'm attaching from episode 153, Destination Linux, on YouTube. Michael, Ryan, and Zeb discussing. And this is the first clip. Um, so there's the issue that great, it was around before the time shift happened. And by the way, time shift is not a solution. It's a workaround. Um, some people would refer to it as a Band-Aid. Uh, and the reason is because they have an infrastructure that is based on Ubuntu, but it doesn't do a clean fork. So if you do a, if you look at the difference between Ubuntu and Debian, it's Ubuntu is a fork of Debian. It's, it's a derivative, but it's also a fork in that all of the packages that are in Ubuntu are pulled from Ubuntu and not directly from Debian anytime you do an update. So they take all the packages at one time in Debian and then put them into Ubuntu and then they do their thing on top of that. Whereas Linux Mint has a weird thing where they sort of fork and sort of don't. They take some packages, make their own version in their own repos, and then they also use the Ubuntu repos for a lot of other things, probably most things really. 
And this creates an issue where there's a compatibility thing between what Ubuntu does and what Mint does. So if Mint were just to fork everything, this problem wouldn't be an issue necessarily. But because they don't do that, they have this weird, sometimes uh, in the back in the day, they had that one through five priority of like our warning levels of what could be happening. And the only reason right. is because sometimes on the four and five, they were bringing in core elements from both their, their repo and the Ubuntu repos, creating this weird mix and match thing. And it could have created an issue and they didn't have a solution for that because I, whatever reason, and it was the solution was essentially a workaround by putting in time shifts. So if something does happen, they can just kind of ignore it and go back. You can just roll back into the previous version. So it does solve the user's problem, but it doesn't solve the technical issue of the disconnect. Okay, Bill, uh, this thing about Mint and Ubuntu and the fork not being complete and time shift as a workaround, what do you think? Uh, well, I think they pretty much discussed it at Michael Ryan and Zeb. They they talked about it and they gave you know Mint does its own thing, uh, yeah. and you know because I mean they've they've de they developed software for it and then change it how they want. You know that's what happens because if you really think about it, you got Debian, then Ubuntu, and then he had another uh, Mint who forked from. Ubuntu, and they still use the base, but they change a lot of stuff. So yeah, you're gonna have compatibility issues. It's just, you know, it's just like a copy of a copy of a copy. Sooner or later, you know, if you diverge far enough, it's going to cause problems. Right, right. And I see their point about time shift being a workaround for this problem. I'm not sure that's why time shift has been implemented in Linux Mint, but because it's a very good backup program. Um, but it is definitely a useful tool to work around this issue that they have. And Paul's main issue here is, if I read down in his email a little bit further, he says, I'd like your analysis. In my case, I'm using Linux Mint 19.2 Cinnamon as my daily driver. I'm not a distro hopper and have used Linux Mint for six years or more. Should I be concerned about this new practice? I don't know whether it's a new practice or not, but I'm not so sure you need to be concerned about it, especially if it hasn't caused you any issues. And if, if it's not broke, don't fix it kind of philosophy. So... If this forking or not forking completely issue uh, isn't really causing you any troubles, then I, w I wouldn't worry about it. And as the guys on Destination Linux have said, time shift is the solution to the problem. If something breaks, you use time shift to roll back and work from there. So I think... I think it's covered. I don't think you have to worry about it. You can continue to use Linux Mint for many years going forward if that's your choice. Uh, on the other hand, if it has given you trouble and you're always restoring from a time shift backup, then maybe you should change to something else. But if that's not the case, don't worry about it. That's kind of my opinion. What do you think, Bill? Yeah, if he's been using it for six years and it's still working... Uh, don't follow my example. If it's, you know, I, I break things just because I like to break things. If it's not broken, just continue using it. 
you, when it starts causing you problems where you're, you know, you can't get your work done, then you might want to look somewhere else. But if it's working for you, use it and abuse it until you just can't you know, use it and abuse it anymore. That's that's what I'd say. Just, you know, I wouldn't worry about it. Yep. Okay, and then his clip number two is about PPAs. We'll play that now. The the problem that the PPAs have is back they they still have the problem but it's not as a, as not a big a deal as it was then uh because in 2015 is or so I realized they had this issue and what it is is that there's this priority system that it's built into Linux. Every Linux system has a priority for the repos that you can pull from. And this is set you set a number value for that prior for the repo and it gives you a uh, list of being able to control the order of when something is pulled from. So, like for example, Ubuntu by default their repos and basically every repo uh, Ubuntu provides or PPAs are all set for priority 500. And the way that you can change this number and it will change the priority, but you don't actually have to do that. All you have to do is make sure that your pro the repo you want to have priority is set higher in the list, so it checks that first and then goes into the rest. Now, this is a, a good solution, and that's not what Mint did. Instead of that, they they do have it at the top, but they also changed the priority system or the priority number for their repos. And they have it from 700 to 750, depending on which repo you're talking about. Now, what happens is if you install a PPA, that PPA is set to 500. And it creates a conflict between what, no matter what order it is, the repo for Mint is automatically taken over because of that priority number. So if you install, if you want to install an application, and admittedly, this is a rare thing because you have to, you one, you have to find an application that is in both the Ubuntu packages, the Mint packages, and a PPA, uh, so that they have to, they had to have pulled it from Ubuntu, made their own version, and then you also install a PPA to get it. You'd have to do all that, so it, fair enough, it's not a huge issue, and especially not with the flat packs and snaps and app images anymore. So it's, it's still, it's less so, but the structure is still in place where when you install a PPA and you install an application from that PPA, you will not actually get the application from that PPA because the priority of Mint takes over. So you're pulling from the Mint repo instead of the PPA you just installed. And the only way to fix that is to manually change the PIN number or the priority number for uh, for the repo for Mint or to manually install the dev package from the PPA, which will then force the particular PPA to become priority. And then so it will start I called, pulling. I called nonsense on this live with you on the phone. Right. And then we did a test. And unfortunately, you were correct. Uh, yeah. It installed the old version. Instead of giving me the latest version from the PPA, it installed the old version of the package from their software store and ignored the PPA entirely. Mm. Which and, and really, that's quite shocking for a, a new user that's just learning about um, Linux. Um, and I'm assuming it's going to do that for the NVIDIA drivers as well. So you're wanting the latest 440 off of the NVIDIA PPA, and it grabs the three, the 435 off of Mint. It's it's possible. The, the, the issue really depends on if if Mint decided to fork it in their repo or not. If they didn't fork it, then it's not a big deal. But if they did, right. then it would be. Well, the first issue is you're running NVIDIA. The second issue would be how Fair Mint handles that package. Okay, and he continues, PPAs and priority. I really don't understand the technical parts of the discussion, but I'd like to get drivers and other software that is the latest if I have to use a PPA to get it. 
Question. Generally, should I be concerned enough with these issues to change distros? Let me just weigh in here. Again, it's it's a pretty technical discussion, yes. But essentially what they're saying is that the PPAs that they use, PPAs for new folks are personal package archives. It's a way of putting additional software that may not be part of the standard distribution out available, uh, and it may not get the same scrutiny as other packages, but it's a completely acceptable way in in Ubuntu to uh, provide software updates. And it looks like the Linux Mint folks have a system of priorities that overrides the standard way of doing it in Ubuntu distributions, which is if the PPA is on the top of the list, that's the one it'll pull from. Uh, and the Linux Mint repositories take precedence over that set of priorities. So if there's a more recent driver available in a PPA than there is in the standard Linux Mint repositories, with Linux Mint, you're not going to get the most recent drivers. And I suspect that the reason they do that is because the Linux Mint repositories have drivers that they've tested. And the PPAs, like I said, don't have the same scrutiny as the Linux Mint repositories, or the software in the Linux Mint repositories. So I understand why they do it that way. Uh, and there are ways to lock the version of something that you're using so that if you have a driver that has version A, for example, and version B comes out, and Linux Mint is going to always default to version A because it's in their repository and version B doesn't, you can set in Synaptic or even on the command line, you can lock the version that you're using so that it will always use version B. If you can get it to install the latest version, then you set the lock before you do any updates and you're all set. So that's kind of where we're at. Um, and again, is it, to answer your question, is it a serious enough problem to switch distros? No, I don't think so, because the Linux Mint team is trying to keep you safe by making sure that the drivers you're using are the ones that they have had an opportunity to to verify and vet. And if they haven't taken a look at the most recent driver, then they're not going to let you use it until they have. And then once they've looked at it, it'll be in the repositories and you'll get the latest version of it. So, Paul, I think that's my opinion. Do you, do you agree or disagree, Bill? I agree. I agree with what you said. I'm sorry, I was looking through something real quick. And, yeah, everything you said just makes sense. Uh, they're just trying to keep it um, as, as safe as they can for their users. Uh, you know, I, between the guys that were discussing it, some of them kind of saw it and some of them kind of disagreed. And in the real world, that's probably not going to be something that you're going to be looking at if you're in video card works or whatever. Um, most of that's for NVIDIA cards, I think. Uh, if it's working, why, you know, you don't need the latest and super greatest. You know, they're going to release it as an update or in the next version. So if, it, if it's working, just use it and don't worry about it. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. If um, 
if you're using a driver and you don't need the additional new functions that the update to the driver is providing, then you don't need that new version of the driver if everything's working fine. So Paul wraps up his email saying, my experience with Linux Mint has been a very good one. I haven't had any problems with system updates since installing Linux Mint 19.2 Cinnamon several months ago. Well, Paul, if that's the case, keep on using Linux Mint. Seems to be working for you. Yeah. Our next uh, email comes from Daniel, and he asks about using no monitor. I am trying Fedora 31. Since I use Orca, the screen reader, I need no monitor. But when the monitor is off, the computer does not want to work. Is there a way to tell Fedora not to bother with the monitor? Yeah, have you explored around with the, uh, settings for displays or power on Fedora? Uh, no, uh, I haven't, but I have a Fedora uh, distro that I'm looking at. I can always look at it when I load it up and see. But yeah. Uh, maybe there's something in the software that's you know that's telling it. Does does Orca need a monitor to be to to work? I mean, there it would have to. I guess it'd be part of the input, wouldn't it? No, I don't think so. I think Orca because it's a screen reader. It doesn't. Uh, I wouldn't expect that it would require a monitor. I'm thinking it's something in Fedora, and I'm not a Fedora user, so I don't. I'm not familiar with the the settings. But looking at Ubuntu-based distributions. I know there are settings for displays. I know that you can turn off or on displays in those settings, in the display settings. And I know there are some power management settings as well that tell your computer what to do when on a laptop you close the lid, which is essentially a switch that turns off the display in many cases. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would suggest, Daniel, whether it's a laptop or a desktop, see if there's a setting in the power management somewhere that allows you to change the behavior when the display goes off or when the laptop lid is closed or when certain situations occur that might be similar to the monitor power going off and make sure that that is set to do nothing or whatever the equivalent setting is. And in Ubuntu based distributions, typically you have three settings. There's do nothing, there is suspend, and then there is power off. Uh, And depending on which distribution you have, you may have all of those options or some subset of them. Uh, And if there's something going on with, When you turn off the monitor, and I'm assuming this is a power switch on a Mm desk-based system as opposed to a a laptop or something like that, when you power off the monitor, then Orca stops working or Fedora stops working or something like that. Um, I think that it's probably a power management setting, but I'm not absolutely sure. Maybe there's something else in Fedora that makes the assumption that you need a monitor to use the system and it checks to see if there's a monitor and if not, things don't work. But uh, yeah, so Daniel's saying that when his monitor's off, the computer doesn't work, not that Orca doesn't work. So hmm, I'm I'm thinking it's a Fedora setting or maybe you just have to make a tweak in the power yeah. management or something similar. Yeah, I don't uh, I don't know about Orca. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move on to our next email. This one's from Nathan, who wrote us about OpenSUSE 
and their EULAs and gave us some feedback on our episode 383. Greetings, long time, no right into your show. I'm still listening and enjoying. Some advice on doing upgrades in OpenSUSE. And when we were listening to, I think it was George or someone who was reading through EULAs and had to scroll all the way to the bottom on OpenSUSE. Maybe it wasn't George. Maybe it was somebody else. Uh, but Nathan says to skip through the EULAs on OpenSUSE when doing upgrades from the terminal with Zipper. In the terminal, just add dash L or dash dash auto agree with licenses. After you read it the first time, this is an issue with NVIDIA drivers too. Uh, specifically, this option will automatically say yes to third-party license confirmation prompt. By using this option, you choose to agree with licenses of all third-party software this command will install. This option is particularly useful for administrators installing the same set of packages on multiple machines by an automated process and have the licenses confirmed beforehand. Example of use, so this would be a command you would type in the command line zipper space update space dash dash auto dash agree dash with dash licenses. Keep in mind that OpenSUSE gives you the ultimate control over your system, but with the added benefits of passing control over to the system. Thanks again for your show, Nate, Cubicle Nate. That's a cool trip. Yeah. All right. Our next email comes from George, uh, who also wrote about episode 383 from December 26. He's went... Hey, Larry and Bill, best wishes as we head into 2020. About the EULA episode. VirtualBox is free. VirtualBox extensions are not free for business use. And I remember the discussion about the wife who needed to run Windows on her computer. She needed it for work. I tried VirtualBox and needed the extensions. Oracle is darn near as litigious as Apple. (laughs) The extensions are sold in large enterprise packages. CDW has a single install listed at $40 from a third-party seller. Before buying, I want to be uh, to be sure that the third-party seller had the right to resell part of the bundled purchase, or better yet, if it is Oracle itself. And it gives a link. It will be in the show notes. Yeah, and by the way, I took a look at that link. And uh-huh. for $40, you have to order a quantity of 100 Oh, is that all? Yeah, so you got to spend $400. Lovely. Yeah, okay. So then he says there's a, there's alternative VMs. Jupiter, Jupiter Broadcasting's Choose Links number 25 just discussed virtualization. Some far geekier than I would try, but also known boxes that... That sounds promising and relatively straightforward. I just checked the GNOME boxes. Apparently, isn't restricted to pure GNOME desktops. And he gives links to the Choose Linux show and to uh, the GNOME users and, uh, and and to the link that talks about the GNOME uh, boxes stable. So, before going farther, in <clears throat> I listened to that episode and they were talking. Uh, one of the hosts got all really geeky and was using Zen and all this wild stuff, and he was able to get really good uh, results, but definitely not for a new user. And then uh, I think one of them uh, was uh, was saying, yeah, she just 
they just use gnome boxes and it works really well for them. So gnome boxes yeah. is, is really lightweight, not a lot of switches to flip and stuff. So yeah, it, it's probably if you just need to throw a quick uh, VM just to see what it looks like, uh, gnome boxes will probably uh, work. Uh, I did. I have had trouble with it running non-Debian based uh, distros because I've tried it. And it didn't like uh, it didn't like Sabian. It didn't like uh, OpenSUSE. Uh, it didn't it uh, it didn't like uh, uh, I think it was Fedora 29. So anyway, it, I guess your mileage will vary. But it, it, if it's a Debian-based uh, distribution, it, it worked pretty well. So he goes on and says he, about the certificate issues. He said Firefox raised new issues when I. Just visited your site, and he said 122919 at about 1220 Central Standard. So I hope you have that fixed. Sadly, I think it is potentially dangerous to advise users to ignore the certificate warnings. I've not taken the trouble to go fetch certificates for our several Synology NAS boxes, but rely on my Synology self-signed certificate. These are internal to my home and work network, so I just click through the Firefox option to ignore the warning and proceed out on the general internet. I'm very concerned uh, the failed certificate might be a red flag alert about a man in the middle interception of all or part of a website. Ignoring it could feed malware right through a user's uh, browsers. Your problem wasn't really your problem unless we consider a flaky hosting company as your problem. But failed expired certificates could also be a tip-off that a website author isn't paying attention to basic security. WordPress installs that aren't secure and regularly updated are a common hazard. And then he uh, continues and he says, Money, uh, in past years I've been honored to be able to send in a few dollars to support your efforts. I'd be willing to mail a check, or if uh, Gmail still has the feature th that enables sending money, I did use it once and it worked. I'd write and mail or click and send. George. Well, thanks for the offer, George. Certainly unnecessary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. And certificate issues. Yes, we've got them fixed. And it was, as I said, the one single tiny little graphic file that was on a uh, site managed by Apple that does not have an SSL certificate on that site. So once that's fixed, it's no problem anymore. And so, uh, you know, not a problem. However, your point is well taken. As a general rule, you shouldn't just click through ignore. Uh, and, you know, that people who have been using Windows XP and now Windows 7, uh, who get the warning when they start up their computer that says your computer is now out of support and click through dismiss because that's what you have to do to use your computer. Yeah, it's kind of like that. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, thanks, George. I appreciate it. All right, our next email is from Highlander, who wrote about mass surveillance countermeasures. <laughs> 
Can you figure out, he says, how Linux could play a role in mask surveillance countermeasures? Can you tell your audience your opinion on this? He provides a link. We'll have it in the show notes. And that link describes things like special glasses that make your head glow if you're being caught on infrared cameras or other special glasses that uh, sunglasses that normally in infrared light will pass through and give you know um, the software that that identifies people the ability to see through dark sunglasses. Well, these sunglasses actually make that black for the uh, for infrared light, and they talk about the the problems with uh, uh, software. Excuse me, with um, facial analysis systems, false positives or false falsely identifying people, uh, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it's it's a lengthy article, but it's got a lot of good information. And the bottom line is, yes, there is a lot of surveillance out there, depending on what country you're in. It, that will determine how much is actually there. Some of it you may know about because you can see the cameras. Some of it you may not know about because it's surreptitious. And, you know, yeah, um, there's an old saying about those people who give up security for convenience deserve neither. Uh, those who give up security for safety, I'm not sure that same thing applies, but we've got to be aware of this stuff that goes on. And this article gives you some thought-provoking things to look at and read. So what's your opinion, Bill? Uh, it's it, governments all over the place are putting up more and more cameras, but I, I, I did read this, uh, article and, uh, there, or one very similar where the, that someone had, uh, used a computer to design, uh, a shirt that when a camera saw it, it's confused it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah. So that was kind of, yeah, but I think the surveillance is going to be around and there's not much we can do about it. I mean, we can try for privacy protections and stuff. I mean, if you really want to get down to it, we're kind of doing it to ourselves too because everybody that's you know, putting up all those ring doorbells, you know, with the cameras, all those are going back to, uh, to isn't it Amazon who owns ring? You know, so. Hmm. I don't know whether it's Amazon or somebody else. Yeah, some, but, but, but now the police can actually just. Uh, pull the video from your ring doorbell so we're kind of doing ourselves we're putting them in our houses uh and um you know at our doors so every time you know unless it's something that you're self-hosting yourself uh it's going you know the, the data is there someone's going to take it and so i guess what we have to do is kind of you know, try to set some boundaries and some guidelines. Uh, that's about the only thing I think of because, but you know, yeah, they say London has uh, cameras everywhere, and in China, I was just watching a documentary. They're putting more and more cameras of all time. They have more cameras per capita than um, uh, you know most countries uh, or two or three countries combined. So, you know, the more the more this uh, you know surveillance, the more data they're going to get. It's it was pretty fascinating what they were able to 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 learn from just watching people. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know really what to make of it, but we've 
discussed it. Let's let's uh, cut all the power and live without power. Or oh, wait a minute, no, no, let's not do that. You know, without power we couldn't podcast. So <laughs> anyway, our next uh, email comes from Daniel, who wrote about Manjaro Linux, and he said, with no Orca, he said, in times past I would want to try Manjaro and try to start Orca, and would hear no speech. Does Manjaro come with Orca built in? to the installer. Uh, some installers have no Orca. Um, how may one write to the Manjaro people? I use no Facebook nor Twitter. Okay. Well, uh, as far as I know, Manjaro does not install Orca by default. And I've looked at the Manjaro user's guide that's on their website. And I don't see any reference to Orca or to the accessibility software that would give you a screen reader. And I couldn't find an email address on their website. But you could post something into their wiki, which is at wiki.manjaro.org. And perhaps someone there could answer your questions. Um, I'm a little surprised they don't have any other way to contact them, but... They don't have forums? No. Well, they have the wiki. I think that's how they have the forum, is in a wiki forum. Oh, so, well. Okay. Right. But there's no email address or direct contact link. And unfortunately, it doesn't say anything about it that I could find in their user's guide that's on their website about Orca or screen readers or accessibility. So, um, you know, not being a regular Manjira user, I can't speak from experience that it's not there. It's just they don't mention any voice-to-speech or Orca or anything like that. Hmm. Uh, that's kind of strange that – well, it's, it's strange that they don't have Orca, but it's also strange that they don't have an email address. Yeah, and exactly. Forms would be just so easy. I mean if you have a problem with, uh, with uh, you know, uh, Ubuntu Mate or MX Linux or regular Ubuntu or Zorin, they have forums or an email that you can reach out and say, uh, hey, can you help me? <laughs> so, yeah, it's kind of strange that they, they use a wiki for everything. Our next email is from Michael, who also wrote about Linux, this time Linux Mint and Orca. Hi, Larry and Bill. I am now running the latest version of Linux Mint. I think it's 19.3 with Orca. I managed to run Mint as live from my DVD, and Orca no longer gives me that problem of speech on followed by speech off just a few seconds later, as though some bright person <laughs> may have disabled Orca from running, perhaps just because they might have accidentally enabled speech and perhaps not known how to turn it off. The two problems I had when first getting used to Linux Mint were the graphical update manager. The other problem I have in Mint is that speech doesn't always start during login, but that seems to be a problem with Ubuntu overall. I am running Linux Mint Mate as I'm not sure if the other desktops yet work with Orca in Linux Mint. Michael in Baltham, West Yorkshire, UK. And Michael, I do know that the Mate desktop has done a lot of work with accessibility and has done a lot of work to make sure that Orca works out of the box and works with whatever distribution of Linux it's installed on and you're using Mate as a desktop. 
Linux Mint Mate, one example, Ubuntu Mate, another one, who have done a lot of work to ensure that that configuration works out of the box at startup, at login, so that our blind users of Linux have a tool that they can use right as soon as they start their computer instead of having to um, having to fumble their way through the login screens and uh, wait for the desktop to come up. So there you go. Uh, yeah, stick with Linux Mint Mate if that's what you're using or um, Ubuntu Mate if that's what you're using. Those are the two best in my opinion. Okay, uh, our next email comes from John, who wrote uh, with a Thunderbird backup and restore question. He writes, Hi guys, Happy New Year, and I hope all is well. I wanted to know if I do a Thunderbird backup on a Windows PC, can I restore the backup onto a Thunderbird install on a Linux distro? Thanks for your time, John, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, and I, I, I saw that, and I was thinking about that, Larry. It, the backup it really isn't. It doesn't care what operating system you're running. So he should be able if he has a backup Windows and he's and he uses Thunderbird. It should be just a, a simple. I mean, not, not, they still use the same the same type of uh, file format for their backups, don't they? They do, and it used to be that for Gmail and for Thunderbird and anything Mozilla. You just take the Mozilla folder or the Thunderbird folder from the computer you're starting from and copy it to the computer you're putting it on. And if you're moving from Windows, of course, the directory that it'll be in is in Windows somewhere. I have no idea. Uh, but uh, in um, in uh, Ubuntu-based distributions, it's usually in the... Uh, configuration folder, which will be a dot folder, so it'll be hidden by default. Um, you drop it in there, or there'll be a uh, Mozilla folder, or there'll be a Thumber Thunderbird folder. Just drop the contents in there, and there'll be your profile and all the other stuff, including your mail and everything there. And it'll just work, uh, regardless of where you pick it up from and drop it off to. Now, I did... In researching this, it's been several years since I wrote an article on how to do that. So I did a little bit of research to see if that's still possible. And I found one post on someone who was having trouble and they said that Windows had or Mozilla had disabled the ability to just move that. So I don't know whether that's actually true or whether that's someone's misperception. I only found the one post saying that and I didn't see any responses to that post. So I don't know what the resolution was for that user. But as far as I know, you can still just pick up the Thunderbird folder, put it in the appropriate place on Linux and it should work fine. Okay. Okay. So Ken wrote us about VPN and password manager. Bill, Larry, I'm trying to improve my internet networking security. I use Linux Mint and Android on several computers' phones. First, I was looking at something like Bitwarden for the password manager. However, I ran into problems with QRZ site, which is a ham radio logging. I could log in, but it wouldn't let me look at my database. After removing Bitwarden extension, it went back to working. 
Of course, I haven't thoroughly worked this problem. By the way, the current method that I use to manage passwords is that I keep a list of all my passwords on paper. I have no physical security problems. It's just me and my wife, retired, and a few others passing through. I use decent passwords of 10 to 12 characters, uppercase, lowercase, numbers, symbols. So unless I have better luck with the password managers, I may stay with this. Use slightly longer passwords, change them more frequently. But I got reading about VPNs. Do you use a VPN? I am looking at getting one of these to improve the overall security. Any recommendations? I realize this is two subjects. Security is a subject area that you all may want to cover as a podcast subject, article, or video if you have time. I appreciate all that you do. I know that each of you are very busy in your day jobs. Thanks, Ken. KB4XT. Well, any thoughts, Bill? Do you use a VPN um, or a password manager? I don't use a pass. Well, let me rephrase that. I I have used a password manager. I, I just can't be bothered to actually reinstall <laughs> installing. Uh, I I have uh, I I kind of use the uh, pen and paper method uh, because really it's me and my big goofy dog. So, you know, if they want to come and search my emails, there's not, <laughs> they got to get into computer first, <laughs> but <laughs> they're not going to find anything interesting. So, you know, or, or they could read the show notes to the future shows, Larry. I didn't think about that. Yeah. There you go. Uh, yeah. So That's we might true. have to, uh, yeah, we have to keep those in the lock and key. But uh, as far as VPN, I don't use one. Um, but I, I would, uh, I would use one if I was traveling to uh, like other countries. Maybe they have like if you were going to visit China, you can use v- VPN to actually uh, you know use uh, services that would be blocked in China for for most of the citizens. Or uh, there's some people that are traveling over here, and like if you're from uh, Great Britain, you know they have a bunch of uh, like shows at the BBC that. And if it's easier in America, uh, it won't let you play them. But if you use a VPN, you can tell your uh, your data to come out in uh, Great Britain, even though you're in America. So you can you can still get the shows or the news or whatever you want. The one thing you got to worry about VPNs is, um, and this might not, you know you might not like it, but stay away from the free ones because you know you don't know. You have to trust them with your data. You need to find one. They're pretty cheap now, but you find one that you've, you know, what the security practices are. Uh, I know, um, I can't remember what it is, but if you're looking for a VPN, um, on, uh, Twit, Leo, uh, uh, has mentioned a few that he likes because of their, their the way they control the security and stuff. So you might want to, uh, give him, give them a, li- a listen. Uh, I think you can also read, uh, they have some open show notes at, uh, I think it's called Tech Guy Labs, and you don't even need to sign up. You can just go and, and read what was said. And they, and they talk about VPNs quite a bit. But yeah, I really don't have, I'm not transmitting any super secret data except uh, show notes for the Going Links podcast or, uh, an email with, to Larry saying, uh, hey Larry, I broke this again, you know, type of deal. But other than that, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it depends I mean does, do you think he really needs a VPN I mean if he's just I mean he says him and his wife are retired I mean I I don't think they're 
I don't know. Yeah, you could use it for banking and stuff, I guess. Yeah, and if he's looking to get access to stuff that's blocked in the United States, uh, uh-huh. I happen to know that he's in the United States. Like you were saying, with television programs and stuff, that might be the reason for using it. Other than that, he probably doesn't need one. Other than for work, I don't use one. For a while, I was using OpenVPN, and I had it on um, all my computers because it was part of the browser, if I remember correctly. And uh, my work provides me with a VPN that is required to be on to access anything uh, on the work site. So I use that when I'm using my work computer. And the reason I'm not using that VPN solution that I was using for a while is because I forgot to turn it off one day uh, (laughs) when I was browsing because it was browser based uh, and I was syncing my browser settings. I, um, I had it on in addition to the company's VPN and I got a call from the company's security department saying, (laughs) um, are you running a VPN in addition to our VPN? And I said, I don't think so. Oh, wait, yeah, sorry, and I had to turn it <laughs> off. So, good news is they're paying attention. Uh, bad news is uh, using one that's browser based may not be appropriate when you're also using a VPN for work. So there you go. And uh, it was it was apparently using a lot of uh, uh, cycles of the company's. Uh, you think uh, internet connection? So anyway. Uh, yeah. And as far as a password manager is concerned, we've talked about password managers on the show and, you know, certainly having the pen and paper version of the password manager is as digitally secure as you can get. No one's going to hack that, uh, digitally through your computer. So that's probably a great way to do it. My, again, my company provides LastPass as a password manager and they allow us to use it for personal use as well uh, set up a separate account and use it for personal use so i use that uh, if it weren't for that i'd be using some other of the solutions that we have keypass x or something like that one of the ones that we've talked about in the past so uh, you might want to check through our show notes just to see what we've talked about and there are plenty of them that are available for Linux, but also cross-platform if you're using multiple operating systems on different computers or even on the same computer and you want your passwords available on everything. So um, unless you're having problems with the pen, uh, which, you know, just go buy a new pen, I, I don't see a need to uh, to have a password manager if it's working for you. All right. So our next email comes from Darren, who gives us feedback on Zorn. Hi, Larry and Bill. Thanks for the latest series. It has kept me entertained while I go around and around mowing and bailing my hay. I took particular interest in the presentation from Bill on Zorn OS. I was so taken, in fact, I splurged. First money I have spent on anything Linux and ponied up for the ultimate uh, version. Man, was I initially uh, disappointed, even more so when Bill soon after dumped it for something else. But we should all... Well, we knew that was going to happen, but anyway. Wait a minute now. uh, Before I go on, (laughs) before I go on, I am still running uh, Zorin on my test machine. Okay. It's still running. I could take a picture. 
right. we believe you. Uh-huh. <laughs> Thanks, Larry. Yeah. Anyway, continuing, he says, having run uh, Mint Mate for the last few years, anything different was going to be a shock. I thought I was prepared for that. My biggest beef was the difficulty in enabling multiple workspaces. I managed to get it working, although they seem to increase in number dramatically now rather than just being the fixed four that I'm used to. As it turns out, the shock was shortly as Zorn is humming away nicely on my regular old Lenovo T420 laptop. It integrated quickly with my regular use utilities, the Dropbox, NordVPN, and Chirp, and seemed very stable. Thank you both for your co- uh, content. I hope you and your families have a wonderful holiday season, and I look forward to a new and exciting presentation in 2020. 73 Darren VK6EK. Yeah, so, well, I'm glad Zorin is working out for you. And that thing with the virtual desktops or the workspaces, yeah. I found that a bit troubling as well. Um, and I don't think it's a Zorin issue. I think no. it's a GNOME 3 issue or, a, you know, a GNOME issue that the workspaces, you have to enable them using a command line command. And then once you've enabled them, then it makes sense that you can go in and create new workspaces as you need them. But it's not there by default on Zorin. I found that and I had to go to some forum posts to figure out how to how to make it work because I knew it had to be there. But I suspect that it's um, a GNOME thing since they're using plain GNOME, the, the tools that are used for settings and setup and so on are GNOME tools. And I think if I'm not mistaken, I think it's a GNOME limitation. Yeah, so you know it's it's uh, January twenty sixth as we record this. I don't know what he means by jumping around. I've only jumped to five different distros, testing them out. Oh, oh wait a minute, yeah. we're still in January. Eleven more months to go. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, I still have a Zorn. I have uh, my test machine who has two hard drives in it now, and Zorn sits on one of them by itself. Uh, and then I've got a few others. I got Zorn Lite on another partition, and so yeah. I mean, I still like Zorn, um, but you know, I got to test. I got to test them, Larry. And that's what I, that's all I'm going to say about it. I like to test them on bare metal. I guess I could do it in virtual machines like we've talked before, but some, you know, it's kind of hard to give an honest review uh, of a distro in a virtual box because you, you really can't get to, you know, you, you don't have the, uh, the graphics pass through uh, on some virtualization. And that's way too take geeky for me to do it because I blow away machines pretty much. Uh, weekly sometimes daily and uh yeah and then the performance is you know the overhead and so i just yeah i guess i just like to do things the hard way right well and an important part of adopting linux is the hardware compatibility and you don't get that if you're in a virtual machine so yeah it's, it's important to test that Thanks, Larry. You you, you, make, you make me feel better but you're still going to, i'm still going to exceed your prediction yeah, I I suspect so. If you <laughs> tried ten distributions all of last year and you've done five so far in the first month of the year, and it's hey, I don't have yet. a pro- I don't have a problem. I just 
I'm just uh, uh, naturally curious. Uh, yeah, all you the, can, yeah, you can, yeah you, there's no problem in switching distributions. You can stop anytime you like. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm glad we agree. Okay, let's move on. Yeah. Okay, uh, our next email is from James, and this is a long email. We're going to break it up into three parts. He had written us some time ago with Hidden Gems to Share, and this is Hidden Gems to Share Part 2. My apologies for our delay in making Part 2 of Hidden Gems. Spent several months distro-hopping, trying other system-D-free distros. I tried MX Linux. Okay for beginners, but bloated like a beached whale. If you strip away too much excess, you end up breaking parts of the system. Also, MX Linux lies about being system D free. System D is installed, but quote, supposedly disabled, unquote, as I found and confirmed by their website. I tried anti-X Linux, uh, also good for beginners and faster than MX Linux, but only due to using Fluxbox, IceWM, or JWM instead of an actual desktop. Of those three options, only JWM offered a panel similar in function to those included in desktops such as GNOME, XFCE, or KDE. I also found AntiX as bloated as MX Linux. I found three browsers installed during installation. Other system free distros, Star Linux, Crows Linux, and Myo Linux. I felt they were too stripped down too much. I am back to DevOne 2.1 and happy to be using it, using the XFCE desktop fast and stable. Okay, can I? I want to put some input before we go any farther. Sure. Um, about, I just want to clarify, I'm actually recording on an MX Linux machine, and it okay. does have a lot of of software installed, but all of this stuff I would install anyway, and so some things that make life a lot easier, like uh, able to use the MX tools to adjust your grub boot menu with, you know, right from a nice, friendly um, uh, GUI, um, or... Uh, and as far as, uh, it, yes, he is sort of right about the system, uh, system D. System D, uh, is in the system, but it's not active. They use what they call shims. And the shims, uh, are there, uh, because there's some software programs. And they actually, uh, explain this on their website. That the, the system D shims there, uh, you can enable it if you want. But those shims there, so applications that require system D work. So it's, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that, uh, it's beach well. I, I haven't found anything on, um, on MX Linux that I would consider bloatware. There's not a lot of games. There's a few simple games, but you know, there is, uh, the XFC runs super fast. I mean, it runs faster than Ubuntu GNOME. I think you could compare Ubuntu Mate and MX Linux for speed-wise. I think it's it, they're within a maybe a point to each other, probably a little bit uh, on certain things. I mean, I haven't seen any speed um, differences, and I know there's a whole 
thing about the system D and why it's bad or why it's good or but right now there's programs that need system D so they put the uh, resources in so you can actually run the programs uh, that require it without actually having it active so good on them for that uh, I don't quite understand what the controversy is behind system D maybe I should read in more about it but uh, uh, Ubuntu has system or oh, system D and it doesn't Larry um, you know what? I haven't really been paying too much attention to oh. the system D and the issues around that, so I can't really comment. I don't pay okay. much attention to that. Whatever they provide is what I use and seems to work, so I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anyway, uh, I just had to say that uh, that you know I think that M, uh, the uh, MX Linux runs really great, and uh, probably because. You know, he said to Anti-X, they're kind of like brother and sister distros, so they share a lot of resources mm. back and forth. So, sure. Uh, anyway, um, so James continues. Sorry about that. I just wanted to, you know, clarify a little bit. I, I they're basically in there as software shims to help programs run that require system. Okay. Okay. So James continues. And now to the gems. For those using the XFCE desktop and use also instead Pulse Audio, there is a Volume Icon applet that works in XFCE called XFCE4-Mixer, a great replacement for the built-in Pulse Audio Volume Control with almost no tweaking will work on newer distro. Gem 2, for Debian users tired of hearing people say that Debian users are stuck with old versions of applications, add the lines below to the repositories in Synaptic uh, Package Manager, then click the Reload button and, and mark and mark for updates. And I'm not going to read all these, uh, but they're, uh, I'm just looking at them. They're just, uh, I guess, new repositories. Yeah, what he's doing is he's adding the Debian dot org stretch so debian stretch uh, main contrib non-free repository and then the stretch updates debian security uh, updates and the stretch backports for the contrib space non-free uh, okay uh, repositories and and he says and voila debian and uh, devon Users are now running uh, with more updated applications with almost zero chance of breaking your system. If running Debian 10 Buster, just replace the word stretch with Buster as you type or copy and paste into Synaptic. And James had more to say. Right, and Gem 3, he says, instead of installing the separate applications, browser, mail client, IRC client, and calendar, consider installing CMonkey and get all-in-one and assured compatibility between applications. Like Firefox and Thunderbird, CMonkey can be tweaked with add-ons. There is also a website add-on converter for CMonkey to get extensions not found in CMonkey's add-on website. Last, for now, I reached out to the creator of QM Play 2 application that I fell in love with and spoke about in my last email and got permissions from the creator to create a Facebook page for users 
of QM Play 2 to share tips, tricks, tweaks. Programmers are also welcome to join. Please spread the word. Well, we will, and we'll have links to all of this stuff that James has sent to us in the show notes. And he writes, forgot to mention that SeaMonkey can also function as an RSS feed reader. So SeaMonkey can replace four separate applications. James in Indiana. Well, thanks, James. Yeah, thanks, James. Uh, Lots, lots of good information there, as always. We appreciate that. We'll share it all. We'll share your links. And... You're all ready to go. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for all the tips and tricks and all that hard work. I really do appreciate it. Yep. Well, what do you think we're going to do for our next episode, Bill? We've got a user experience episode to go. Yeah, I haven't. I'm working on a few things. I hadn't decided which one I want to use. So, how about we just leave it as a surprise? Okay, our next episode will be a surprise. Okay. <laughs> Until then, you can. <laughs> Until then, you can go to our website at goinglinux.com for articles and show notes, as well as links to download and subscribe. Yes, we are the website for computer users who just want to use Linux to get things done. And if you'd like, you can participate directly with our friendly and helpful community members by joining the discussion in our Going Linux podcast community on community.goinglinux.com. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Before I say 73, like, how many times have we read that and we still messed that up? I don't know, but you're right. That's why I have it written. <laughs> anyway, 73. Music provided by Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com.